So at this point, I'm at a place where I can't not talk about what's happening in our country. Um, to just continue with our regularly scheduled program, to me, would feel like I was burying my head in the sand. And so my convictions have led me to pause the series that we were in for one week and talk about what I'm sure you're all thinking about. And so full disclosure, we're going to cover some touchy subjects today. But before we do that, uh, I want to let you in on how this teaching was formed because uh, it's, it's actually pretty unique. See, when, when the footage of George Floyd's murder surfaced, I noticed that a number of church leaders were posting about it. And if you follow me on social media, you probably saw, and maybe you noticed, that I remained relatively silent. And the reason for that is because I wanted to make sure that I had something worth saying before I said anything at all. And so I started compiling my thoughts, uh, planning to record a video for Instagram. Uh, But before I did that, I presented my thoughts to my staff and to the elders, And when I did, somebody very close to me uh, that I trust very deeply told me that their heart was telling them that what I had was not uh, an Instagram video that was actually a sermon for a Sunday morning. And so this morning, I'm going to present that to you. Uh, So on the front end of this teaching, just to kind of lay the groundwork here and and set the tone, um, I just want to put this out here. You're probably going to disagree with some of the things that I have to say. And you're almost definitely going to dislike some of the terms you're going to hear. Um, But I heard somebody say one time that no matter what you do or say, some people are going to dislike you. Uh, And so the only choice that you really have is to determine on what grounds you're going to be disliked. And so in light of that, Uh, The smartest thing to do in this life is just speak and act in a way that's in line with your convictions and let the chips fall where they may. And so that's what this morning is about. This is about me sharing my convictions with you based on what I see in God's word. And uh, there's, there's three specific things that I'd like to talk about this morning. The first is social justice. The second is white privilege. And the third is my response to what's happening right now and what I believe is clear should be the response of every follower of Jesus. So first and foremost, uh, let's talk about social justice. Now, whoever you are, something popped into your head when you, when you heard the term social justice. And, and whatever that thing is that you picture when you hear that term, if you're listening to this and you're a Christian, The most important thing to understand is that God invented social justice. He was talking about it before it was trending. Uh, It matters to him more than it matters to us. And it's actually an emanation of who he is, an extension of his very character. When God was developing the nation of Israel uh, in the Old Testament, one of the things, one of the primary things that was supposed to set it apart from the surrounding nations in the ancient Near East, was supposed to be its concern for social justice, which is just justice worked out in a social system or or a society. And as a matter of fact, when you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that when Israel began turning its back on God and falling apart, when God would raise up prophets to speak on his behalf to the nation of Israel, 
and highlight all that they were doing wrong, what you'll find when you read prophets like Isaiah specifically is that time after time, it was not just uh, the sexual immorality uh, or the overt idolatry of Israel that got God's attention. It was their failure to promote social justice. So I, I think it's important to define this term. So what exactly, when the Bible talks about justice, what exactly is justice? The Hebrew word that gets translated justice in the Old Testament is a word, mishpat. And mishpat, justice, has both a a negative and a positive connotation. In a negative sense, mishpat means giving people the punishment that they deserve. But in a positive sense, mishpat means giving people the protection that they deserve. And so the concept of mishpat according to God, it's, it's really about uh, treating all people fairly, treating all people equally, all details aside. It means that regardless of your track record, regardless of your physical appearance, regardless of the family that you came from, regardless of the resources that you have available to you, when two people commit the same crime, they're given the same punishment. Uh, and when two people move through life and move through society, they're afforded the same protection. And so the concept of, of mishpat, if you zoom out from it, it's, it's really fundamentally about giving people what they are due, whether that's punishment, protection, or care. Uh, and in Scripture, the concept of, of doing justice is primarily centered around four specific groups of people, mentioned over and over again throughout God's Word. That's widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. Now, I'm going to read five verses to you from the Old Testament. I could literally have chosen from hundreds of verses, but I chose these five just to kind of give you a, a brief picture of God's heart for these people. Uh, the, the first scripture is Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 19, which says, The one who denies justice to a foreigner, a fatherless child, or a widow is cursed. And all the people will say, Amen. Psalm 82, 3 says, provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17 says, learn to do what is good. Seek justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah chapter 22 verse 3 says, this is what the Lord says, administer justice and righteousness. Rescue the victim of robbery from the hand of his oppressor. Don't exploit or brutalize the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Don't shed innocent blood in this place. And lastly, Zechariah chapter 7 verse 10 says, Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner, or the poor. And do not plot evil in your hearts against one another. Now, what those four groups of people that get mentioned over and over and over again throughout Scripture, what those four groups of people had in common is that they did not have either the influence or the power in society to ensure justice for themselves. And so as a result, they were frequently marginalized, mistreated, or forgotten about altogether. And essentially what God said to Israel is that he would judge them based on how well they took care of those groups of people. Uh, but here's what's really important to understand, and this is probably where I'm going to begin to ruffle some feathers today. God does not say, 
plead the cause of every citizen of Israel, he says, plead the widow's cause. And likewise, God does not say, speak up for every citizen of Israel. He says, speak up for the oppressed. Now, why is, why is that important? Here's why that's important. Because a lot of times, you'll hear somebody respond to the phrase, black lives matter, with the phrase, all lives matter. And I believe, biblically speaking, that is a very unwise response. I think it's exactly as unwise to respond to the phrase black lives matter by saying all lives matter. I think it's as unwise to do that as it would have been to respond to God in the Old Testament, highlighting the plight of widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor by saying, wait a minute, God, all Israelites matter. Because of course all Israelites matter to God. Of course, all Israelites matter to God, but the reality is not all Israelites were living in constant threat of experiencing injustice. And so my, my, my point here in all this is, is to say this, whatever you think about this issue, what's, what's very important to see in scripture is that God routinely, in his own word, out of his own mouth, God routinely gave special attention to and called for special focus on minorities who were being marginalized, mistreated, or forgotten about altogether in the context of Israelite society as a whole. Now, why did I choose to begin here? The reason that I chose to begin here is to make a subtle but an incredibly important point that I believe is largely forgotten in this conversation that's taking place right now. And it's actually foundational to all we're going to talk about this morning. The point is this. Social justice is not a political issue. It's a theological issue. A lot of times when pastors begin talking about things like this, the response we'll get is, wait a minute, wait a minute, you just stick to the Bible, you just preach the gospel, you just stay in your lane, as though social justice is a political issue, but it's not. It was, it, it was a theological issue long before it became a political issue. It matters to God, and therefore it should matter to us if God matters to us. Now, having laid that foundation, I want to move forward and talk about something that I'm sure you've heard about, this thing called white privilege. Now, I'm willing to bet that there's a whole lot of people tuning into this right now that, that uh, just got a feeling in their, their stomach uh, or got the, the hairs on the back of their neck standing up and have all of their walls up, psychologically speaking, simply in hearing that term. And so let me just open up to you. My whole life, I have rolled my eyes at that term. Actually, I don't even think that states it strongly enough. My whole life, I have found the term white privilege offensive. Because to me, that term meant that I should feel guilty for the fact that God made me white. And I should, I should have to apologize for the fact that God made me white. And that as a white person, I've never experienced any kind of hardship. I've never, never overcome any kind of adversity. Uh, and everything has been handed me in this life. But what I'd like to do is redefine this term in a way that, that hopefully is, is disarming. Maybe it's enlightening. But overall, it's helpful for the purpose of this discussion this morning. So, so here's... here's I think a helpful way to understand white privilege. White privilege doesn't mean you've had everything handed to you. It means your skin color didn't hinder you. In other words, as a white person, you may have experienced all kinds of hardship and adversity in your life. For instance, you may have been born in a home stained with addiction and abuse 
and abandonment and neglect. Uh, you, you may have overcome all kinds of things that would have broken other people who stood in your shoes. You may have fought and scrapped and clawed and worked for everything that you have in this life and for where you are right now. The concept of white privilege doesn't take any of that from you. White privilege does not say you've never experienced any real hardship. It just says the color of your skin didn't add to that hardship. So one more time, let me define this by saying white privilege does not mean you've had everything handed to you. It means your skin color didn't hinder you. So how how does white privilege manifest itself and why is that even relevant to what we're talking about? Let me share a personal story that I recently had with you to kind of shed some light on this, to hopefully shed some light on this. Recently, I was having a a conversation with a number of people, friends of mine, all of whom are white. And and we got on the topic of speaking out and joining this national conversation that's taking place um, about, uh, you know, race and injustice and oppression and and all that kind of stuff. And and we were were talking about um, the pros and the cons of of speaking out about it through social media. So we, we talked about if if whether or not social media is, is the correct place for that, and if not, where the place would be for that. We talked about when and how to join this conversation. We talked about the right and wrong reasons to speak out. And ultimately, uh, it was brought up whether or not it's even worth talking about this, speaking out about this at all. And when I zoomed out from our, from our conversation, it dawned on me that everybody in that conversation had an option, myself included. And the option that we had available for us was, was we, we're able to say, you know what, this conversation about, about racism and injustice and oppression, this is an uncomfortable conversation to have. And, and it, it, it might actually be a little bit risky to hop in this conversation. Uh, it might actually be costly to take a side in this conversation, to make a statement in this conversation. And so I'd just rather not have it. That's an option that we all had. And as I reflected on that conversation, what dawned on me for for really the first time in my life is that 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 option is a privilege that I have as a white person that not everybody else has. Because I I recently read a post from an African-American pastor whom I greatly admire on social media. And in this post, he was letting the viewer, he was letting his followers really into the dynamics uh, in his family life. And he said that that as a result of what happened to George Floyd, his son came to him and the two of them had had a conversation. And his son came to him and and he asked him, he said, Dad, what am I supposed to do if I'm in that same situation that George Floyd was? Now, I just want to pause here for a minute before I keep going. And I want to speak directly to fathers. And I'm going to speak specifically to fathers who are raising sons. And and I'd ask you to put your politics aside, put your opinions aside, and just try to get in the shoes of that father. Try to picture what it would be like to have this conversation with your son. His son came to him and he said, Dad, what am I supposed to do if I'm in that situation? Am I supposed to run? Am I supposed to fight? Am I supposed to try to get somebody to contact you? Or should I just lay down and die? What dawned on me in reading that post is that that father does not have the option to say to his son, you know what, son, this is a really uncomfortable conversation to have and I'd rather not have it. He doesn't have that option. 
regardless of whether or not he wants to have that conversation, it arrived on his doorstep. And this fight for justice, for what the Bible calls mishpat, this fight for fair treatment, this fight for the ability to live in your neighborhood and in your own country without fear, that's not a fight that he has the luxury of choosing. It's a fight that has chosen him. And so when the Bible talks about seeking justice and doing justice, I'll just make this personal for me, what it's talking about is me choosing to enter that fight voluntarily for the sake of people who have been forced into that fight involuntarily. It's about standing shoulder to shoulder with them, linking arms with them, and saying, hey, I might not fully ever understand what it's like to be you, to have your experiences. But if this is your fight, then it's my fight too. And if that sounds strange to you, then I need you to understand, Christian, I need you to understand that that is exactly what the gospel says Jesus did for you. Jesus could have stood on the outside of the mess that we were in, the outside of our lives and the mess that we were in. And his life would have been far easier had he chosen to do that. But instead, the gospel shows us that Jesus entered into our mess and he fought for us and he gave his life for us because he knew that we would never through our own power or our own strength be able to liberate ourselves. And if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not a news outlet, not your Twitter or Facebook feed, not your favorite politician. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that needs to inform how you think about other people, how you talk about other people, how you treat other people. And so at this point, maybe you're asking yourself, okay, fine. So what does it mean to enter this fight? What does it mean to fight this fight? And what am I actually supposed to do about any of this? And what I'd like to offer you is three practical things that every single follower of Jesus should do in response to what's happening in the world right now. And before I give them to you, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but it's a good start. And I wholeheartedly believe that if every follower of Jesus would just do these three things, there would be tremendous healing. First and foremost, and this is low-hanging fruit, mourn with those who mourn. It's a command given to every single follower of Jesus right there in Romans chapter 12. This is so profoundly not the time for what I refer to as whataboutism. Or at a number of times, I've noticed specifically recently, a number of times in response to Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, I've noticed people responding to what happened to them with something to the tune of, well, what about all the other injustices that are taking place in society? And just so we're clear, that is the exact opposite of mourning with those who mourn. In my seven years as a pastor, not once has somebody ever come into my office and told me about a traumatic experience that they had that they're still carrying around 
with them, that they're still hurting from, some, some deep pain in their life that they're trying to process. Not once has anybody ever shared that kind of thing with me, only for me to respond to them by saying, but, but wait a minute, what about what everybody else is going through in their lives? Because that would not be honoring to them. And I think if you and I got honest with each other, we can admit that if somebody responded to us that way, it would make us feel angry. It would make us feel unheard. It would make us feel devalued. It would make us feel like we don't matter to them. Now, in saying that, let me be clear about this. There are other injustices taking place in our society. And maybe this situation is a catalyst for the church to begin talking about those other injustices in society. And just to let you into my personal life, I've been doing some soul searching and asking myself whether or not as a pastor I have been too quiet about things that are going on in society that God would have me speak about based on what he's revealed in his word. But we can get to all that later. But but right now is not the time to change the subject. Right now is the time to very simply mourn with those who mourn. All right, secondly, what every single follower of Jesus can do right now is listen. All right, I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that the vast majority of people that have an opinion about this thing have not taken the time to try to see this situation from a perspective other than their own. On staff at my church, we talk about this thing called seeking to understand before being understood. That's not something that most people go through life automatically doing, but this is an opportunity for all of us to do that. Way too many people are running to social media right now, inventing their unfiltered thoughts and opinions without bothering to ask somebody who doesn't look like them what it's like to be them and have their experiences. And so this situation is an opportunity for all of us to try to get into the life of someone other than ourselves and try to see things from their point of view. And that might mean reading books from authors that you've never otherwise read. It might mean listening to podcasts that you've never listened to. It might mean following leaders on social media that challenge your perspective. And here's the thing, you might disagree with 75% of what you hear, but there might be 25% of it that completely changes the way you see another human being. And even if I'm wrong about that, at the end of the day, what we need to realize is we lose absolutely nothing by listening. It costs us nothing to listen. So secondly, we can listen. But thirdly, and and, and lastly, and this is really what the heart of this entire teaching is about, what every single follower of Jesus can and should be doing right now is speaking up. Proverbs chapter 31 verses 8 and 9 says, Speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. There it is right there. That's not my opinion. That is God's word. Speak up. That means calling out racism and oppression and injustice when you see it. And not just in a reactive sense where when a video surfaces, we talk about these things for a week and then go about our daily routine again. This is talking about in a proactive sense and in an ongoing sense. This means having these conversations with our friends, having these conversations with our family members, and maybe most importantly, having these conversations in our homes. You know, just to let you in my home, my oldest son is six years old, and we've already started having these conversations because it's my opinion that he's not too young to have them. And so the night that I found out what happened to Ahmad Arbery, my son asked me to give him a Bible story. And we talked about the story of Joseph, pardon me, of Jonah. And we talked about how, how Jonah didn't want 
to talk to the Ninevites because they didn't live like him and they didn't look like him and they were different than him and he didn't want God's love to go to them, but that's what God wanted. And we talked about how God looks so much different than us and yet he came to us anyway and he loved us and how that needs to inform the way that we view and treat other people. And and here's the bottom line. I'm sure a child psychologist or a racial reconciliation expert could parachute into my home and, and, and rightly critique me about all the ways I'm not having those conversations exactly right or phrasing things exactly right. But where I'm at today is I would rather have that conversation imperfectly than not have it at all. We are at a place, I don't know anybody that can disagree with this, we are experiencing a profound amount of disunity right now. And I believe that disunity is the byproduct of a number of conversations that no one took the time to have And so in summary of everything I've said this far, I I just want to bottom line it with this. God has given me a platform. For whatever reason, people listen when I speak. I have no idea why God decided to do things that way. I have no idea why God has decided to give me a platform. But what I do know is I'm going to use that platform to do for others what I hope they would do for me. And while I'm not foolish enough to think that I have the solution to racism, what I do have is a conviction, and that's the conviction to speak up. Because in my Bible, my God has called me to. Now, let let me begin ending this talk by saying this. And I would ask you, I would ask you, please lean in here. Let me begin ending this talk by saying this. You may have completely disagreed with everything I've said here today. You you may believe that I have been taken captive by some kind of agenda. You may believe all kinds of things. But even if you do, I need you to hear my heart here. Even if you believe those things or a million other things about me and about this teaching, I need you to understand this. Even if you do, I love you. And there's a place for you at this church. We live in a society right now that teaches us that if we disagree about anything, that we have to be enemies. And that, that issue that we disagree about needs to become the center of our relationship until it destroys our relationship and we stop talking with each other and we run to social media and we yell at each other and we dehumanize each other. And that, to me, explains so much of how we got, of how we got to where we are right now. That is an exhausting way to live. And it's not the kind of world that I want my kids to grow up in. And inside the church, inside the church, we have got to figure out how to talk with one another, how to sit at a table with one another and have conversations with one another and be able to say, hey, I love you. We just don't see, we just don't see eye to eye on this particular issue. I don't see anybody else in the world doing that right now. And so let me just go ahead and lead by example. You may disagree. You may think this teaching was total nonsense. You may have wildly different opinions about everything that I've talked about today. And if that's where you're coming from, I need you to know. I'm asking you to believe that I love you. We just don't see eye to eye on this particular issue. But you are still my brother or my sister in Christ And my Bible says we're going to spend eternity in the same place. So we had better figure out how to get along. I believe that the church is the hope of the world. I I, I want you to hear that one more time. I believe that the church is the hope of the world. And I don't care how corny or, or how cheesy what I'm about to say sounds. I joined the fire department because I thought I could make a difference in this world through the fire department. 
And I left the fire department to be a pastor because I really believed I could make a bigger difference in this world through the church. And I believe that now more today than I did seven years ago when I took off that uniform for the last time. But I believe that if the church is going to make a difference in this world, it begins by us showing the world a kind of unity that it's never seen before. Jesus said at the Last Supper in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he said, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I've loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He didn't say people would know we're his disciples if we agree about every issue in society. He said people would know we're his if we chose to love each other regardless of all that. And Jesus, the Son of God, went on to say in John chapter 17, as he prayed for you and me, Jesus said that it would be our unity that would be the final and the greatest apologetic to the truth of Christianity, that it would be our unity that shows once and for all a watching world that Jesus really was sent here by God the Father. So in conclusion of all this, I want, you, I want you to know, I want to let you into my heart here that I believe that if anything, if anything can heal all of the brokenness, of all that's broken in this world, it's going to be this thing called the body of Christ. A group of Jesus followers that have been transformed by the love of God and are determined to extend that love across cultural boundaries, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of class, regardless of politics, across cultural boundaries. But if we're going to do that effectively, if we're going to extend the love of God that's been extended to us effectively, we're going to have to do that together. We're going to have to do that as one, which means we need to figure out how to practice real unity in the family of God. And so that's exactly what we're going to talk about seven days from now. So whatever your opinion is about this teaching. I hope you join me because I'm going to be right here and I'd love to have you. That's it and that's all.